Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. Today I'll focus on this concept of uh, neuroarchialization. Um, and this is something that um, uh, we have going on in the lab for several years now and uh, very discreet uh, research. Uh, I think most of my research is known for modeling diseases uh, using stem cells. Um, but uh, yes, indeed, we do have like a line of research that focus on, 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 on brain evolution. And um, I will start by saying that our biggest question is really to find uh, what make us humans. And that's not a simple task. And there are many ways to we study that um, and we bring the stem cell perspective on the table. So I think um, most people know that currently understanding of uh, human evolution has indicated that many hominin lineages appear and coexisted on Earth. But only one, us, modern humans, survived to the present. So Neanderthals and the Nisovans, uh, two of these uh, extinct lineages, are our closest relative. And uh, we see them as uh, the species that provide the most, uh, the most subtle genetic and phenotypic contrast to modern humans. And that's why we like to focus on them. Uh, particularly, I would highlight the Neanderthals because these are the ones that we have the, more, uh, the most information from the fossil records. So we know a little bit more about them. Um, and one thing that it's really important in this context is this idea that throughout evolution, the Neanderthals, similar to any other species, didn't show the dramatic uh, development in arts, technology, and adaptation that we see with modern humans. In a very short period of time, uh, we modern humans, we have dramatically changed the environment um, and, and developed technologies that are just uh, amazing uh, not to be compared to any other species. So how actually this happens? What makes us uh, unique species in, in that sense? So there's many ways to start comparing the extinct relatives uh, to modern humans. Um, we take advantage of fossil records, uh, especially for uh, brain evolution. We look into endocasts. Um, we can extract now ancient DNA from these uh, fossil records. So we have uh, genomic information from them. And there are uh, also impressions that um, these extinct relatives have uh, left um, and we can try to uh, understand them as well. Um, so all of that uh, give us like a, a, a view of how they live, where they uh, uh, have gone, I mean, how their societies were structured. Um, but unfortunately, we, we don't have that much information about uh, brain development. And that's because uh, the brain do not fossilize. So that's where uh, stem cell plays a role. And that's why we like to bring stem cell into the studies of um, evolution, because we can capture uh, a time where no other model can actually give us uh, too many information. So we approach that by using stem cells and, uh, and differentiate these pluripotent stem cells into brain tissues, um, such as uh, brain organoids, which is uh, the topic for today. Um, and uh, before I continue, just to give like an overview of uh, brain organoids, uh, this is a technology that was initially developed by Yoshiki Sasai in Japan. And he was really the first one who showed us that if you grow these pluripotent stem cells and neuralize them in uh, suspension, they will self-aggregate and form uh, organized tissues that we never seen in our traditional two-dimensional cultures before. Um, so these, uh, he can even guide it, uh, specific brain regions by adding ectopic factors in the culture media. Um, so some of the images of his uh, pioneer work are here, and you can see some level of organization, which is uh, truly amazing that this was done in 2008. And that's exactly when I was starting my lab. So by looking at this technology, I said, wow, this is something that I want to incorporate in my lab. So we, uh, we start mimicking um, Sasai protocols uh, very early on, um, but it was not easy in uh, my lab and other labs. I mean, were uh, evolving uh, these protocols over time. I mean, many people have made um, uh, adjustments to the protocol. We have much more robust protocols now in different subtypes of protocols as well. 
So when we talk about the brain organoid, it's important to define what kind of protocol we are using. And um, most of the time, I mean, we can uh, uh, classify brain organoids into two types. Uh, we call them guided differentiation. This was pioneer work from uh, the Jurgens lab with Madeleine Lancaster, where you have different brain regions in the same unit, or the guided differentiation pioneered by the Sasai lab, where you can use ectopic factors to drive specific brain regions. Um, you can even combine uh, different brain region organoids to create uh, small circuitries in a dish. So each one of these technology uh, generates a different type of organoid with different cell populations, different structures, and there is uh, advantages and disadvantages uh, for each one of them. So you really need to understand what kind of protocol you have um, to answer your biological question. So um, before I continue, I would like to point it out that uh, brain organoids are definitely not mini brains. This is a term that you see a lot in the media and gives you the impression that you actually have a miniaturized brain in a dish, such as the one that I'm showing here, um, but this is actually not the case. Um, brain organoid technology um, is reductionist in nature. Um, it's a powerful technology, but there's lots of limitations. Some of them are listed here. Most of the time, what we have are immature neurons. These organoids are not vascularized, so they cannot grow that much. Uh, we don't have all the cell types represented in there. Even uh, the culture conditions that we grow these organoids are not optimal. Most of them are borrowed from the mouse embryology. Um, so we, we still don't have like the optimal condition to grow these cells. There is intrinsic variability from cell to cell, clone to clone. And uh, most importantly, um, very few work has shown any translational uh, abilities, meaning that what you see in the organoids is exactly what you see um, in the brain. So it is a model of neurodevelopment. Uh, any extrapolation with the uh, adult brain has to be done uh, very carefully. So my lab has uh, developed a new protocol to generate brain cortical organoid. And this is uh, uh, the work developed by a postdoc, Kleber Tugilio. Uh, and he optimized the media conditions to have uh, a truly uh, optimized protocol starting with single cells. These are pluripotent stem cells, can, can be done with human embryonic stem cells as well as uh, induced pluripotent stem cells. And then you neuralize the cells uh, using a very transient um, exposure to dual-SMAD inhibitors. Uh, and then you stimulate the proliferation. That's when the neuroprogenitor cells or NPCs will start to proliferate by adding uh, growth factors such as FEGF followed by EGF. And then you remove these growth factors and we enter the stage of neuromaturation. So then the, uh, the progenitor cells will start to differentiate into neurons and, and, and form different um, cortical subtype of, of neurons or, or cortical layers in these organoids. So if you've never seen a brain organoid, um, this is Isabel. She was a postdoc in the lab and she's just um, showing that you can actually see these organoids by naked eye. They actually reach 0.5 centimeter in diameter. So each one of these uh, uh, white dots here is one of organoids. And in every single batch, you can create actually thousands of organoids. So you have plenty of organoids to, to deal with the experimental uh, variability uh, in these protocols. So if you cross-section one of these organoids, what you have is something like that. You see uh, a structure called neurorosettes uh, where the progenitor cells uh, surrounded this uh, ventricular zone. Uh, some of the cells becomes radioglia cells uh, projecting to the outside here in white. Um, these cells will serve as a guided uh, for the progenitor cells to migrate. And as they do that, they differentiate and form the cortical plate. As you age disorganized, the cortical plate becomes more and more complex with different subtypes of neurons, and these neurons start forming connections to each other. So um, I often get the question, what kind of cells you have in disorganized? So because this is a very dynamic protocol, um, it changes. We start with single cells and we end up with 2.5 million neurons. So in between, lots of things happen. I'm, I'm showing here a snapshot of an organoid that four months. So you can see that you have progenitor cells, intermediated progenitor cells differentiating mostly in glutamatergic neurons. At this stage, you can actually see a separation between the upper cortical neurons and the lower cortical neurons. At four months, we start seeing some of the progenitor cells giving rise to glia. 
most of these glia cells is going to be astrocytes that we actually help uh, neurons to further mature and form synapses. And at this stage, uh, we see a very discrete population of GABAergic neurons. They are not truly inhibitory neurons at that stage. Later on, they will start to release GABA and become uh, truly GABAergic neurons. So very dynamic protocol. Uh, we have all the different components of the major cell types represented here, of course, um, we don't have microglia because it comes from a different embryonic origins. But nonetheless, I mean, uh, to study neuronal differentiation, I think is still um, a great protocol that recapitulates neurodevelopment. So another thing that uh, we were able to see with this protocol is the spontaneous generation of uh, network activity. Uh, so this was done by plating these organoids on top of a multi-electrode array dishes so what you are seeing here in the bottom is one of these organoids uh, sitting on the top of the electrodes. Um, they uh, keep the three-dimensional structures, but the neurons on the bottom actually are uh, in very close touch with these uh, electrodes. And as they fire or become active, you create uh, an activity map or a raster plot. So the beauty of this protocol is that it's one of the few electrophysiological methods where you can record from the organoids longitudinally and uh, allowing us to see how these networks evolved over time. So we, we actually saw that um, not only they become more active, uh, the neurons become more hyperexcitable, uh, the number of electrodes that becomes active also increases over time. And to our surprise, uh, starting at four months of age, these organoids start to spontaneously develop neuro oscillations. These neuro oscillations are very coordinated activity, uh, similar to what we can record from the EEGs. Uh, the EEGs are electrodes that we place uh, throughout the skull to record these neuro oscillations. By six months, uh, these oscillatory activities become very stereotyped. Uh, and if you wait long enough, uh, that's when the inhibitory neurons start to release more GABA in the system. And you see that the networks become highly complex. We start seeing the overlap between the peaks um, and showing that uh, these uh, organoids actually have this spontaneous evolution of this network activity, which is something unprecedented. We've never seen that before, but uh, we were all very happy to see that even though these organoids are a simplistic model, very reductionist, with only 2.5 million of neurons, they can actually achieve that level of uh, complexity. The other thing that we did was to see how similar are those uh, neural oscillations with uh, human neurodevelopment. So we create a model. Uh, this is a machine learning algorithm or a, a regression model where we teach the model to uh, assign the age of the subject based on EEG features. We train the machine with um, more than 500 EEGs coming from prenatal brains. It starts at 25 weeks post-gestation up to 35 weeks post-gestation. Uh, the machine gets really good. It looks at one or two EEG features and can tell exactly the age of the organoid. Once we fully train the machine, we start feeding the machine with the multi-electrode data, uh, the local field potential required from these um, uh, uh, multi-electrode arrays uh, coming from the organoids. And we do that in a very unbiased way. The machine has no idea if it's analyzing the data from the actual human brain or if it's analyzing the data from the organoid. Then we ask, can uh, the machine predict the age of the organoid? And if so, how similar would that be with uh, human neurodevelopment? And um, I think the data is quite impressive. I'm showing here uh, the predicted age in one X and the actual age uh, in another one. The perfect correlation would be on the dotted line here. Uh, the human data, uh, the real human data is here in the black dots and the organoid data is in blue. Every dot here represents one single organoid recording. And as you can see, the progression or the complexity of these neural oscillation follows uh, human neurodevelopment, which is uh, simply amazing to watch that uh, to see what that happens. Uh, you might notice that before 25 weeks, the correlation is quite poor. Um, this is because uh, we never trained the machine with human data coming from uh, that early in development, uh, that data simply do, do not exist. So we don't know yet what happens uh, 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 with the lateral activity in the human brain 
in the first 25 weeks. So it's still a, a black box um, for us neuroscientists, uh, developmental biologists. So we don't know that. But uh, starting at 25 weeks, we see that uh, the model recapitulates the emergency of these spontaneous uh, neural oscillations. So, um, well, that's, that's all great. And I think everybody will say, well, fantastic. How can you apply that to the study of uh, human evolution if we don't have uh, Neanderthal live cells, so we cannot reprogram cells? Um, even if we have a nuclei or a soft tissue, um, would be hard to do a nuclear cell transplantation uh, to generate pluripotent stem cells carrying that, 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 that genome. So we cannot do that. So instead, we turn into um, a genomic project where we postulate, um, oh, and, and, and we, we took advantage of um, uh, several genomes that were extracted from the fossil records um, uh, throughout the years. This is work of many people. And the comparison of these genomes have shown that many humans today uh, carry specific genetic differences that might have been important for recent um, human evolution. So knowing how uh, the species or, or, or the genes differ from modern humans to other extinct um, species would be important to understand really what makes us human. So we, we, uh, we understand now that most of these um, introgressive regions have contributions um, to disease in, in, in modern human populations, but we are interested in exactly the opposite. We don't want to know what kind of DNA sequence we have in our genome, we want to know what kind of uh, 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 genetic variations we lost or are unique to modern humans. So this is conceptually very different from, from what um, most groups are, are doing uh, at that stage. So um, in a broader perspective, um, we create this uh, broad hypothesis suggesting that Positive selection on specific genes might have resulted in a more sophisticated brain. So that's a, a huge hypothesis, a huge claim, and we don't know how, how or, or if that's true or not, but we have to start somewhere. So what we decided to do was um, really uh, to start looking for uh, a comparison between uh, uh, the genomes from these extinct relatives in uh, contrast with modern humans, um, we end up focusing on uh, protein coding genes um, mostly, um, and uh, we compared the human genome sequences with both Neanderthal and Denisovans, and we found a set of 61 positions in which all humans carry autosomal fixed-derived mutations in protein coding genes. Of course, there are lots of uh, alterations that are not in protein coding genes, there are thousands of alterations in regulatory regions, in tronic regions, uh, enhancers that were not, we decided not to follow them for now. So we only focus on these protein coding genes. And uh, when we look at that list, um, we found that the neuro-oncological ventral antigen 1, and I'll be calling NOVA 1, includes one of these few protein coding differences between modern humans and archaic genomes. Um, so NOVA-1 was uh, selected uh, for further studies for several reasons. Um, first of all, I mean, when we look at all these uh, 61 genes, it was only NOVA-1 that produces what we call a potential cascade effect. Uh, because it's a splicing regulator, it changes the expression of downstream genes. It's specific to human neurodevelopment, so we can capture the activity of NOVA-1 in our brain organoid model. So we have higher chances to see potential alterations um, in the phenotypes that we have uh, for our assays in the lab. So that's why we decided to initially focus on NOVA1 as a proof of principle that our platform can actually review differences um, uh, on, on, on regarding these mutations. So this is um, uh, the uh, NOVA1. Uh, the, the partial domain that binds to the RNA, and I'm highlighting here the nucleotide uh, variant. Uh, so it's in, um, in this uh, 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 region that uh, binds to the RNA or, or, or binds to potential partners to favor splicing. Uh, it, it, it's almost fixed in the human population or nearly fixed in the human population. From our data sets, we actually found uh, that that difference between uh, uh, 
Neanderthals and, and modern humans. It's only present um, in, in, in two individuals from all the data sets that are out there, but in a heterozygote uh, version. So we never see uh, the Nova one, um, uh, Neanderthal archaic version in, in homozygotes in, in modern humans. So that uh, we couldn't find anything like that. So it's possible that eventually um, through genetic mutations, these will appear, but we, we don't see that. Um, actually, when you look in the polymorphism uh, of humans, I mean, you see that that region, this is where the amino acid has changed. Um, it's, as I said, I mean, it's very um, uh, conserved uh, in modern humans, suggesting a strong positive selection um, and very different from all the genomes that we analyze from the extinct relatives. Um, more recently, I would like to highlight this paper from uh, Ed Green, one of our collaborators, where he date where these mutations or when these mutations actually happen. Innova one seems to be uh, happening here in the second wave of human mutations, uh, human specific mutations um, that is uh, as early as uh, 200,000 uh, genes, uh, 200,000 years, sorry. Um, so it's very recent that uh, it happens in, in, in the human population. So what we do, I mean, we go into our genomes, we design a CRISPR strategy where uh, we replace the modern version of the NOVA one um, for the archaic version of the NOVA one in human pluripotent stem cells. And from these cells, we create a brain organoid. So uh, it's a human genetic background and the brain organoids are, are carrying uh, the archaic genetic variant. And that's where the fun begins. So by doing that, uh, we actually use two cell lines with uh, two distinct genetic backgrounds to avoid that this was specific to a single genetic background. So we choose two cell lines and we use two different CRISPR strategies to replace the modern uh, version for the archaic version of, of Nova one. So in the process, um, we generate clones that are homozygotes for the archaic version. We generate clones that has passed through the CRISPR enzymes and continues to, to have the human version. So these are our uh, unchanged or positive clones. Uh, we also generate full knockouts. Um, uh, these uh, knockouts uh, eliminated the expression of NOVA1 and these clones were actually used as a controls in downstream experiments. Moreover, uh, to exclude the possibility um, that upper insufficiency of the NOVA1 gene uh, was uh, responsible for any downstream phenotype. We introduced the archaic version of the NOVA1 into the NOVA knockout background, generating the NOVA knockout archaic background. So by doing that, um, we avoid the potential uh, effect of upper insufficiency. And then, I mean, all these clones um, uh, were subjected to off-target um, analysis. And despite all the extensive uh, off-target analysis that we perform on these clones, uh, we later find out that uh, the clone 20, 28 uh, that we initially thought that was an archaic, archaic homozygotes clone is actually a knockout uh, archaic uh, uh, clone. And, um, and, and, and this was due to a, a, an undetectable uh, CRISPR off-target mutation in, in one of the allele. So this was actually a good surprise. It was done blindly because we didn't know about this genotype. And um, it confirms what we previously found, that both the homozygotes and the heterozygote uh, archaic cells have similar NOVA1 protein levels leading to similar phenotypes. So that was uh, one of these um, uh, uh, interesting mistakes that uh, turns out to be very positive for us. So once we generate all these clones and we have all these genotypes um, and, and make brain organoids, we're curious about what kind of phenotypes should we look for. And um, we, are, we, we, we thought that we wouldn't see any uh, alteration in, um, in, in brain size. Um, because we are dealing with mostly modern human uh, versions of cells here and, and very different from chimpanzees who separated from humans for more than 6 million years uh, ago. So we thought that brain volume was not something that we would detect in, in our model. Um, and, and also, I mean, this is uh, somehow uh, validated by uh, endocasts. Uh, lots of works on endocasts suggesting that the brain volume of uh, for example, Neanderthals and modern humans, uh, it's about the same. If not, Neanderthals might have actually a little bit larger volume. But from these endocast studies, our interpretation is that 
um, is not about, about brain volume, but most likely the different ways of processing information that these cells will rearrange uh, to create a brain that might be similar to us, but will process the information in a distinct way. So we are kind of curious to see what the brain organoids will actually reveal to us. And um, uh, during organoid development, um, we start um, a measure size and morphology from the beginning. So this is the uh, uh, representative images um, uh, during the neuroinduction. And although uh, no differences were observed during neuroinduction, uh, the NOVA1 archaic and NOVA1 uh, knockout archaic cortical organoids were smaller in diameter um, than the NOVA1 modern humans, especially during these uh, proliferative and maturation stages. Um, so we, we start seeing like these different shapes um, in, in the size again were uh, uh, different as well. So we're very curious about that phenomenon. It was a big surprise to us. We never expected to see something um, uh, uh, very clear that we could detect it by naked eye, uh, the genotypes. So to explore uh, potential morphological differences, we extract two-dimensional outlines uh, to generate these uh, three-dimensional surface models of the cortical organoids. And these models uh, review the uh, increase uh, surface complex that we have in the archaic version. Uh, we also see that in the knockout um, version of uh, the organoid uh, during the prol proliferative stage. So that was um, very curious to see. Um, they actually show very clear phenotype in, in, in here. Um, and uh, we thought that these... Uh, uh, phenotypes might be due to different ratios of proliferation in cell death, so we measured that. In the NOVA1 archaic, uh, uh, organoids proliferate more slowly than the modern human cells, and we see an increase in, uh, in cell death at early stages, and so they develop this aberrant cell layer structure morphology. Um, so we think that the fact that we see these uh, alterations in proliferation and increase in cell death as well as uh, an increase in G0, G1 stage in cell division might actually be linked to the alterations that we see uh, in the morphology of these organoids. We're still exploring exactly um, how, uh, how these happen, but it seems to be uh, the case here. So it was very clear. Um, the other thing that we did was a, a global gene expression analysis in two different stages of the organoids, an early stage and a late stage of the organoid. And we identify uh, hundreds, be more precise, 277 differently expressed genes between the NOVA1 archaic and the NOVA1 uh, modern human organoid at different stages um, of maturation. So um, you might ask why you're looking at global gene expression. If you have a splicing gene, most of these splicing factors do change uh, gene expression uh, as well. So that's why we did that. And um, many genes that we found that involved in neurodevelopment or different neurodevelopmental process would make sense in the light of uh, the phenotypes that we have uh, in, in, in morphology, proliferation, and cell death of these organoids. So it was very interesting uh, to observe that. We also perform single nuclei RNA-seq to characterize the cellular diversity of these organoids. So we use unsupervised clustering and we combine a data set of uh, 50,000 nuclei to identify these clusters in their relative abundances. Uh, differences in cell proportions were observed among the genotypes, uh, leading to, to, to potential differences in, in regional identity. And I would like to highlight that most of the differences are not in the early stages, but later stages in the organoid. For example, if you look at uh, glia cells in here, a significant reduction in the number of glia cells, mostly astrocytes in the archaic organoids compared to modern humans. So this is, um, again, one of the clear observations that, that we detected with uh, gene expression analysis. So we then turn into the differential uh, splicing um, rates. And alternative splicing occurs at significantly different rates between the archaic and the modern human uh, organoid. Most of the differences in alternative splice um, were cassette inclusion in alternative first and last axons. Many of the differently spliced genes in the NOVA1 archaic organoids are actually involved in synaptogenesis in neuro neuronal connectivity as shown by uh, gene ontology analysis. And that, that actually guides us um, to look into those assays later on. 
So one of the genes, for example, that uh, we, we saw that, was, uh, that has a different isoforms between archaic and, um, and, and modern humans is hom Homer tree. Uh, Homer tree is a member of the Homer family. It's a family of scaffold proteins uh, present in postsynaptic densities. And it was spliced differently by the Nova 1 archaic uh, version. We validate that um, by Western blot. We can actually see the protein being made here in the archaic version that um, was never present in the human version of uh, the organoid. So now we have an organoid that has a different isoform of Homer tree in, the, um, in, in their protein. So this different isoform um, of, uh, uh, of Homer tree might have different functions, suggesting that alternative splicing forms uh, might actually change how the synapses um, actually behave inside these organoids. And, um, and, and, and that was interesting to see. So this is one example. We have many examples that uh, we actually validated uh, showing that, yeah, the archaic version of ANOVA-1 created these new isoforms that were never present in the um, modern human organoids. So we also um, determined the binding preferences of uh, the human and archaic forms of NOVA-1 across the transcriptome, and we use eclip assays to do that in collaboration with uh, Gene Eo, my uh, long-term collaborator here at UCSCD. Um, we were able to identify uh, more than 3,000 significantly enriched binding sites for both forms of NOVA-1, uh, which around 80% occur in intronic regions in human protein coding genes. And two-thirds of these peaks are overlapping between the genotypes and the binding sites of both forms of NOVA-1 are strongly enriched for the canonical sequence motif. Um, so notably, cells carrying the archaic uh, genotype uh, preferentially select the alternative last axon in, in shorter 3' UTR region of the NOVA-1 transcript with corresponding to reduced binding density of the Nova one archaic in the long three prime um, UTR. So it, it's interesting to see that some of the targets um, that we detected in our analysis are actually quite important human genes. For example, GTF2Y, which is a gene implicated um, in uh, autism when duplicated, or Williams syndromes when you have a, a deletion in one of the alleles. And in both uh, autism and Williams syndromes, are human conditions implicated in, in human social development. That was a, a, a nice example of um, how this uh, archaic version can actually change um, binding sites of uh, uh, important genes um, that, that we know for human uh, social, socialization, for example. So since many genes are differently expressed express or spliced in NOVA-1 archaic organoids, are involved in synaptogenesis in neuronal connectivity, we verify if the synaptic protein levels uh, showed any alteration in these organoids. Um, NOVA-1 archaic uh, cortical organoids express lower levels of pre and post uh, synap synaptic proteins resulting in reduced colocalized synaptic protein. I'm showing here just some of them. I mean, Homer-1, synapsin-1, VGLUT-1, PSD95, they were all down-regulated at protein levels um, in, in the synapses of the archaic version of the NOVA-1. So now we have different isoforms. We have different amount of proteins uh, in the synapses. So what, what are actually happening at the synapses? And um, so it's a complicated question because uh, the human synapses is quite full of protein. So this is just like a visual representation to see how busy um, the, the human synaptic during brain development it is. There's so many proteins that interact. Some are scaffold as Homer tree. Um, others are postsynaptic density proteins. Um, so there's so many things going on. Uh, so we decided to take a different approach uh, to understand what's going on. So we, um, we look for protein alterations that would uh, affect interaction between uh, networks. So we use quantitative multiplex co-immunoprecipitation to characterize the abundance of these synaptic proteins. This was done with my collaborator, uh, Stephen Smith, and we identified 15 high-confidence protein co-associations that were significantly different um, between the two genotypes, include um, Shunk, Homer, uh, and GLUR5, which binds to each other to form receptor scaffold system, PSD95, 
uh, NMDA receptors in, in Syngap that contributes to activity-dependent plasticity. So the data demonstrate uh, widespread changes in synaptic protein and network downstream of the NOVA1 um, alteration. So again, I mean, everything points that um, this was a, a quite relevant uh, alteration for human network uh, formation. And um, that's why we decided to place uh, these organoids, uh, similar to what we did before to characterize the development of these organoids. Um, we place both the archaeolites and modern human organoids on top of multi-electrode array to evaluate the network activity. So these mature NOVA1 archaic cortical organoids display an increasing number of births and a higher coefficient of variation, while showing lower synchrony levels compared to NOVA1 humans. So this um, higher uh, hyperactivity was also quite uh, not expected. Um, we also observed that uh, neurons from the NOVA1 archaic cortical organoids have a higher variability according to their firing rate. So it seems like they, um, uh, they do provide different uh, ways to, to fire neurons. Uh, that might be related to the different isoforms that we have in the synapses. So the data suggests that uh, the expression of the archaic NOVA1 variant leads to modify synaptic proteins interaction affecting glutamatergic signaling and neuronal connectivity. Just um, to make sure that we all understand at this stage, we still don't have inhibitory neurons. So we're just looking at um, the contribution of uh, glutamatergic neurons um, uh, in, in, in the organoids. Um, we are maturing these organoids even further to see what happens to these um, networks as we add um, more inhibitory neurons. Um, and, and then we will be able to look at neural oscillations, which will bridge um, something, uh, uh, will bridge the basic biology, something that we could, we could say that we might be approaching um, cognition by looking at the different frequencies of these neural oscillations. Um, but this is a, a required long-term cultures over a year of these cultures. They are maturing now in the electrode. So we will know what happens in a couple of months. Um, but I would like to highlight that um, this early maturation of cortical organoids carrying the archaic NOVA1 mimics the behavior of this uh, chimpanzee bonobo-derived cortical neurons. So this was actually the work done by uh, Carol Marchetto in the Gage lab. Uh, both Carol and, and, and Rusty, they are pioneers on using stem cell um, uh, for um, uh, evolutionary studies. And they have this beautiful work where they compare neurons derived from iPSCs from humans, chimpanzees, and bonobos. And they also play to those neurons in multi-electrode array. And uh, amazingly, they see exactly what we saw with the archaic version of uh, the human organoid. In the beginning, uh, human neurons, human cortical neurons do not have this hyperexcitability. Chimpanzees and bonobo-derived neurons actually show um, uh, this hyperexcitability, but over time, the synchrony levels of humans become higher, uh, even though the activity is still catching up. So you can visualize that better here in those curves. So we see this hyperexcitability early on uh, in chimpanzees and bonobos. Uh, humans take the time to fully develop these networks. So the fact that this is actually reproduced in uh, chimpanzees and in bonobos IPS cortical neurons is very interesting. So one experiment that we are planning is to humanize the NOVA1 version in chimpanzee and bonobo. They all carry the archaic version to see if we can uh, correct um, that maturation level. That would be an amazing evidence that that specific mutation really drives some of these uh, neuronal changes um, in a more direct way. So where we are going, where are our next steps um, from, from here? So we have a couple of experiments uh, lined up. Um, I told you about the long-term analysis, uh, electrical analysis of these neural oscillations in these organoids. This is ongoing. But uh, we also realized that NOVA1 is also a gene that uh, is subject uh, to environmental impact. And, and for example, lead is, is one of the things that actually changes uh, the activity of NOVA1 and changes NOVA1 downstream targets. So lead is quite important because there are plenty of evidence from um, different groups suggesting that uh, Neanderthal children were actually exposed to lead. Um, so if that's true, it might be that uh, the archaic version of NOVA1 
um, might make them more susceptible, for example. So we are looking at uh, splicing rates of uh, Nova 1 organoids that are now uh, exposed uh, to, to lead to see if we detect any differences. So that might um, point to specific environmental pressures um, for that um, mutation to be positive, positively selected in, in modern humans. So Caterina and I also create the uh, Archaeization Center, or ARCH-C, uh, here at UCSD. Uh, this is a center that was uh, created uh, to unify uh, stem cell biologists, anthropologists, uh, genome editing people, and people looking at uh, genomic analysis uh, to continue this work um, so our goal is to archaeize other genes. I mean, we are looking for epistatic effects on NOVA1 by creating mutations in other genes, in, 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 other, uh, in, in any of the other 60 genes, uh, to see if they interact with NOVA1. We are also looking to uh, archaeize um, regions that are not related to, to protein coding genes, but regions in, in, in regulatory uh, sequences um, and enhancers to see if we can change uh, gene alteration using this model. I must say that we are not only focused on, on neuroarchialization, we are looking for other tissues as well. So that will give us a complete version of the mutations that are relevant um, to modern humans. So that would be an, an exciting thing that um, will take time, but uh, through the years we'll be able to provide this catalog of uh, human relevant specific alterations uh, that uh, make us modern humans. So uh, I will have a couple of uh, take-home messages. Um, first, I mean, our work showed that there are only 61 genetic variants that distinguish modern humans from other archaic hominin. Uh, and of course, there are thousands of uh, known uh, protein coding genes that also changes between modern humans and their archaic hominin. The archaeization of brain organoid does not I repeat, it does not generate Neanderthal organoids. I, I, I get that a lot. I mean, how your Neanderthal organoids compare to the Neanderthal endocast? We cannot make those comparisons. What we have is a hybrid system where there is a, 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 the human genetic background and we change only one base pair in that human. So, the, for example, the target sites of NOVA1 um, is actually on the human genetic background. So I would say that our system is, um, is powered to understand more the evolutionary steps that made us modern humans rather than understanding the Neanderthal brain. The archaic version of NOVA1 alters modern human development. I think we have pretty convincing data now that uh, this single base pair alteration is quite important um, for human development. And it might be a significant evolutionary step uh, in human brain evolution. And as I mentioned, we have several follow-up studies um, to kind of validate that hypothesis. So um, this work took many years and many people to be completed. Uh, here I highlight uh, the authors from the different institutions that actually um, help us to take these uh, off the ground. I would like to point and highlight again uh, the work from Kleber Trujillo, Kleber was a pioneer on optimization of the human cortical brain organoid. So we can say that we have now uh, a very robust protocol um, to use for these studies. And he was also the, the, the one that was brave enough to continue on this evolutionary project, despite the high risk nature of this project. Uh, I'd like to thank my funding agencies and disclosure that I am a co-founder of Tismo, a company that uses brain organoids uh, to develop um, new treatments for autism. Um, I'll finish here and I'll be happy to uh, take questions um, from the audience. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Alison. Wow, amazing presentation. Thank you. Um, Venkat Krishnaswamy is asking, wonderful work. If archaic Nova 1 organoids is a hyperexcitability similar to chimps and bonobos, how different is Nova 1? chimps and humans? Oh, they, they, they all have the archaic version. So all the other species actually have the uh, archaic version. Uh, so that's why I, I, I suggest one cool experiment would be to humanize a chimp IPS cells and then understanding 
the excitability of neurons in, in, in that humanized version. So they actually carry the Neanderthal version, similar as the Neanderthal. Um, Anthony Hunter is asking, um, what do you find if you differentiate the Nova one uh, archaic, archaic um, neurons into another tissue type? In other words, would you expect changes in splicing patterns to affect several organs? That's a great question. Uh, Nova one normally is not um, expressed at that stage in other tissues. Um, so the human iPS cells mostly re recapitulate uh, early neurodevelopmental stages. Um, so in whatever tissue Nova one might be expressed, it might cause uh, differential splicings. Um, but at that stage, I mean, we, we really focus on, on the nervous system. Um, I might be missing other tissues that might have low levels of Nova 1, for example. I think the pancreas might be one of those. And it's, it's worth investigating. Yeah. Um, another participant, AC, is asking, have heterozygous Nova human natural organoids shown to exhibit a dominant phenotype or an intermediate type? It's mo mostly like a dominant uh, phenotype. The heterozygote archaic um, works exactly as uh, the archaic archaic uh, variant. Uh, Pascal Gagnon, he's asking, I wonder whether you should not rephrase more sophisticated as differently sophisticated to avoid being crucified by the Natterdal inclusionists. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question, Pascal. I'll take your advice and, and I agree. Um, I think the sophistication comes from uh, the observation that uh, we modern humans uh, have this uh, amazing power of technology. Um, but uh, as we know, I mean, uh, more technology doesn't mean um, better species. <laughs> so as we're waiting for more questions to come in, I would like to follow up on Pascal's point because I actually had a similar reaction to that. Uh, one of the things that makes this line of work, Alison, so incredibly exciting is that we are going to have a look into uh, some of these questions that have uh, been uh, mind-boggling for evolutionary anthropologists for a long time. We do know that uh, we have these very large creatures, very large brain creatures uh, going around. These brains are very expensive metabolically and energetically. So uh, uh, what exactly is going on? Um, the idea, uh, if one looks back at the history of uh, comparative neuroscience was that the bigger brain explains most of our cognitive capabilities. But uh, what aspects of sophistication really uh, is it that we are trying to, to, to take apart? Um, many anthropologists would argue that Neanderthals exhibited very, very sophisticated behaviors. The archaeological record supports that. So yes, differently sophisticated is probably the, the, the great way to, to put it. That, that's why I like to interact with you guys. You always provide really good advice. I agree with you. <laughs> okay, so I have another sort of big picture general audience question that uh, sometimes we hear from the general public. Is, uh, is this going to lead to a Jurassic Park? That's what I... So yeah. Can you share your reaction to that kind of concern or question? Yeah, uh, likely not. I mean, that's a, a misinterpretation of what we do. And um, so I think we are still far away or, or most likely um, un unlikely to have soft tissue from uh, Neanderthals or any other hominin uh, where we could eventually do something like that. I think both uh, you and I, Katerina, we watched that movie, Williams, um, that discuss about that potential possibility so you will need to transplant an entire nuclei of an extinct hominin um, into an embryonic a blastocyst of a human and, and, and a woman might have to, to borrow their uterus to, to generate that species um, or an artificial uterus would, would need it to generate uh, an entire um, uh, human being. Um, so... In, in the absence of a soft tissue, this is unlikely. The genome is also very fragmented uh, because of the age. So I don't think we're going to see that. Um, I rather think that the model is uh, probably more power, again, to understand the steps um, that uh, the human lineage took to be here. Um, and, uh, and, and by looking at the relevant genes that uh, changes neurodevelopment, for example, I think it's, a, it's an interesting uh, perspective on um, 
maybe human cognition, maybe human adaptation uh, that uses the brain as a, as a tissue uh, to actually survive uh, through the year. So it's an intriguing question that why we are the only ones uh, that have survived so far. And one, one of the hypotheses would be, well, because we perhaps were more adaptable. So that um, might be related to how the brain works. Thank you. Uh, we have a question from Kiran. Uh, given that organoids, which may lack mature synapses, does the NOVA data imply that humans and natural brains differ during beginning of brain development? Yeah, so that's, that's um, uh, the kind of um, uh, extrapolation that I'll be very cautious. Um, it's hard to compare humans and Neanderthals because, again, we don't have a Neanderthal brain organoid. Um, but we can say that uh, extinct species that have the archaic variant uh, might have a different neurodevelopment. Um, I think that's all we can say, that that variant changes human neurodevelopment. So it, it, it's, because it's positively selected in modern human population now, we assume that this uh, was, again, I mean, selected for one reason, and the reason is good because we are here surviving. Um, but very hard to do comparison with um, the Neanderthals. I have again to say how much I appreciate the um, approach in your lab of really bringing together, Alison, uh, this dynamic uh, system that's controlled in the laboratory with uh, the classical comparative neuroanatomy information. So when we compare human to chimpanzees, which are the closest relatives, right, all we have is a snapshot in time and you have control of everything that happens uh, physiologically and morphologically, uh, which we don't have. On the other hand, I appreciate that you clarified that these are not mini brains that you're creating, uh, the organoids, and, and uh, we do have the, the brains of uh, the, in the full organ that we can compare to. So it's great to see that your line of work is so well informed by all lines of information that are out there. Uh, unless you want to add something else, Alison, I think we are going to be wrapping up our conversation today. Super. Thank you so much, Katerina. It's always uh, helpful to uh, have these discussions with uh, you, Pascal, and all the anthropology department. Thank you very much. And thank you, everyone, for watching. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.